0: Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all, and thank you for coming out. Um, The chapter that we have to consider this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 38. So you might want to turn to that passage in your Bibles. It's a long section, so we won't take time to read it. But if you keep your Bibles or your phones open... Uh, You can follow as we make our way through the narrative. We are now well into Holy Week. The Lord Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday. He has spent the last few days teaching in the temple courts, retiring each evening to the Mount of Olives. This teaching has so offended the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people that we read in verse 2 the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Then unexpectedly, such a way opens up. And Luke tells us in verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Neither Matthew nor Mark draw attention to the role of Satan in the actions of Judas, but Luke does, and so does John. And because Luke highlights the activity of Satan in this plot against the Lord Jesus, we might think of these opening six verses under the heading, The Old Adversary. If you go back to Luke chapter four and the beginning of the Lord's ministry, you will read about the Lord spending 40 days in the desert. And throughout that time, he was tempted by the devil. The Lord withstood that temptation by quoting from the scriptures. And Luke ends his account of the temptation in the wilderness with these words. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And now in chapter 22, he's back. This time acting through the agency Of Judas. And so Judas approaches the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And Luke records in verse 5 that their response was one of delight. The section ends with Judas watching for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. In his classic work, Excuse me, mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote This universe is at war, a civil war, a rebellion, and we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. The Bible is the story of God's response to this rebellion. It reveals his plan to recover this fallen world. From the enemy, and to rescue human beings from the dominion of darkness, and with the coming of Christ, God entered this enemy occupied world in human form. This is not something the devil was going to take lying down, and as the mission of Christ nears its climax, we will see the response. And there is more of the old adversary to come in the rest of this passage. And in verse 7, Luke begins a new section and records, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The feast of unleavened bread lasted for a week, from the 15th to the 21st of the month Nisan. Nisan. And the Passover itself was eaten on the first day of the feast. And that brings us to our second heading because the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread are associated with the old covenant. So following on from the old adversary we have the old covenant. The theme of covenant is hugely important in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And we need to take a little time to look at this. We need to do so because, as we will see, the high point of this passage is the New Covenant. And if we are to understand what the New Covenant means, we must have some appreciation of the Old Covenant. The Old Testament details a number of covenants entered into by God, either with humanity generally or with his people specifically. The most foundational of all these covenants was the covenant God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so in the Abrahamic covenant, there is a promise of future universal blessing. And then in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, not unreasonably, asked God how he can be made into a great nation given that he is old and childless. And he is assured a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Then God takes Abraham outside and says, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. So in addition to the promise of future universal blessing. There is a promise of heirs and descendants. And finally there is the promise of the land. Genesis 15 verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. The chapter ends with the reiteration of the promise To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. But before all of this can take place, Abraham's descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. And in time, the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant begin to be fulfilled. A son, Isaac, is born to Abraham in his old age. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. And their descendants grow into a great nation in a country not their own, in Egypt. And they are enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 years. And the event that brought that slavery to an end was the Passover. When the angel of the Lord passed through the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn son of every Egyptian family, but passed over the homes of the Israelites, which had the blood of the Passover lambs smeared on the door frames. because of the Passover, the children of Israel were able to leave Egypt and begin a journey which would see their descendants eventually possess the land which had been promised to Abraham. The Passover, therefore, was an essential step in the implementation of the Abrahamic covenant. But, And it's vital to understand the Abrahamic covenant is not the old covenant. Three months after leaving Egypt, the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. And it was there that God entered into another covenant with his people. In Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moses, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. And here are the key words. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the response of the people is, we will do everything the Lord has said. And this covenant with Moses is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And there is a fundamental difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the earlier Abrahamic Covenant. Let's remind ourselves of the promises made to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. Looking up at the stars, so shall your offspring be. To your descendants, I give this land. This is a unilateral covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. The fulfillment of the covenant depends solely on God doing what he says he will do. The Mosaic covenant is different. It is not a unilateral covenant, it is a bilateral covenant. It is not an unconditional covenant, it is a conditional covenant. As well as God being a party to the covenant, there is another party, the children of Israel. And the fulfillment of this covenant depends on them meeting their obligations under the covenant, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. And these obligations, all 613 of them, are set out in that part of the Old Testament stretching from Exodus 20 to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant that we call the Old Covenant. When you come to Leviticus chapter 23, you find that two of the festivals which the children of Israel were commanded to celebrate were the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Passover celebrations... And the symbolism of the Passover are an integral part of the Old Covenant. and This is the context of Luke chapter 22. And the importance of Passover to the Jewish people was reflected in the preparations that were required to be made leading up to the feast itself. These preparations were extremely detailed. Roads were repaired, bridges made safe. Even the wayside tombs were freshly whitewashed to reduce the risk of pilgrims failing to notice them and accidentally touching them and thereby becoming ritually unclean. For a month beforehand, the story of the Passover and its meaning was taught in every synagogue. Two days before the Passover, a ceremonial search for leaven or yeast was carried out in every house. Every male Jew who was of age and who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was bound by law to attend the Passover. And it was the ambition of every Jew to come to the Passover in Jerusalem at least once in his lifetime. And so at Passover, Jerusalem would be packed with those who had come to celebrate the feast. This is the background to the Lord's words in verse 8, where he instructs Peter and John to go into the city and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. The first requirement was to find a room where they could eat the Passover meal. Given that the city was bulging at the seams, you might think this would be well nigh impossible. But the Lord tells Peter and John that they will meet a man carrying a jar of water. Again, you might think in the busy, bustling streets of Jerusalem, there would have been any number of men carrying jars of water. Not so. Men didn't carry jars of water. Women did. Apparently men carried water skins, So a man carrying a jar of water would have stood out. Peter and John duly find this individual and he leads them to a house with a large, already furnished upper room, a guest chamber. And there the two disciples prepared the Passover. What did these preparations entail? Well, they would have needed a lamb, which had to be killed in the temple courts. They needed unleavened bread. There was to be a bowl of salt water to remind them of the tears their ancestors had shed in Egypt. There was a dish of bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. There was a paste of apples, nuts and pomegranates. To remind them of the clay they had used to make bricks in Egypt, with sticks of cinnamon running through it, speaking of the straw used in those bricks. And there was wine to be drunk from four separate cups. And so the Passover meal was made ready. And in verse 14 we read, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. The table or tables were low to the floor. They would have been arranged like a hollow square with one side left open. The food was served from inside the square rather than from outside over the shoulders of the guests. The guests reclined on their left side and ate with the fingers of their right hand. And so this last meal begins, a meal like no other. The drinking of the wine from the cup and the distribution of bread were standard features of the Passover meal. But now it tells us that in the symbolism of the Passover meal and in the context of Passover, something new is emerging. Because as he takes the bread, the Lord Jesus says in verse 19, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again in verse 20, the Lord takes the cup. Which of the four cups? We don't know. But according to Luke, this was done after the supper. It's as if Luke wants to emphasize that this symbol is distinct. And different from the symbolism of the Passover. The Lord says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And that brings us to our third heading. We have thought about the old adversary, and we have considered the old covenant. And now we come to the new covenant. Now the symbolism of the Passover is understood in a more complete way. Just as the people of Israel were delivered from the bondage of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb smeared on their door frames, now freedom from the bondage of sin will be achieved by the sacrificial death of Christ. Under the old covenant, the children of Israel we're required to obey God and keep his law. That is why we sometimes refer to the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant as the law of Moses or just simply the law. The old covenant was based on obedience to the law but the reality of sinful human nature meant that it was impossible to fully meet the requirements of the law. By contrast, the new covenant is based on faith. And in his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul deals with this very point. And he writes in chapter 2, verse 16, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Then Paul asks his readers to consider someone in the Old Testament. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness did not depend on his observance of the law. It could not possibly do so because it would be hundreds of years before the law was introduced. It was his faith that was the basis of Abraham's righteousness. And Paul goes on to point out the dilemma raised by the Old Covenant. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And then Paul describes the glories of the New Covenant. Christ, Redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 finishes with these words. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And So under the new covenant we become beneficiaries spiritually of the promises made to Abraham. The new covenant is established by the blood of Christ. Through his death a new relationship between God and And man has become possible, made possible by the blood of Christ, of which the cup is a symbol. And it is extraordinary to think that at this moment of such importance and significance, the old adversary is there. And in verse 21, the Lord makes the first of two predictions. First, he predicts the treachery of Judas. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Interestingly, Luke does not actually name Judas, nor does Mark. Matthew and John, in different ways, do identify Judas. But it is only John who tells us about the Lord giving to Judas the piece of bread dipped in the dish, that sign of favor and honor, what the authorized version calls the sop. That might suggest that Judas was positioned close to the Lord as they reclined at the table. The seating arrangements at a Passover meal were highly significant. The host reclined at the head of the table The nearer you were to the host, the greater the honor. Perhaps those seating arrangements were the reason for what happened next. Did those who found themselves closer to the Lord feel superior to those who were further away? Whatever the reason, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. However unseemly this squabble might be, the Lord is able to use it to compare the kingdoms of the world with his kingdom. That brings us to our fourth and final heading. We have thought about the old adversary, the old covenant, the new covenant, and now we come to the new kingdom. With the institution of the new covenant, a new kingdom has been set up. Contrasting his kingdom with an earthly kingdom, the Lord tells his disciples in verse 26, The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. But I am among you as one who serves. According to John's account of this evening the Lord had already demonstrated this teaching in the most practical of ways by washing his disciples feet. It is only John who gives us that account and it is curious that something so moving and so memorable should not be mentioned in the other gospels. It also struck me that Judas had had his feet washed by the Lord Jesus. He was seated in a place of honor at the feast. The Lord favored him with the sop. And yet none of these things stopped Jesus from betraying the Lord. Such is the power and the influence of the old adversary. Now in verse 31, he is mentioned again The Lord addresses Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. The word you is plural. The Lord seems to be saying that Satan wants to test the faith of all the disciples. But then he continues, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. There the word you is singular. As if the Lord is praying for Peter, especially. With his customary bravado, Peter declares that he will go with the Lord to prison and to death. And now the Lord makes the second of his prediction, the prediction of Peter's denial. And so it comes to pass that on three separate occasions, Peter disowns the Lord Jesus. An apparent triumph for the old adversary. Yet when you turn to Luke's other great work, the Acts of the Apostles, you don't have to go very far before you find this same Peter transformed by the Holy Spirit addressing the crowd on the day of Pentecost. The cowardly wretch of Luke 22 is now the fearless preacher of Acts 2. When you come to Peter's epistles, especially his first one, you can see the memories and the lessons of the upper room in Peter's thoughts. Did Peter recall those words, I am among you as one who serves? Because in chapter 5 of his first epistle, Peter writes to the elders of those little churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Peter had learned the characteristics of the new kingdom. Did he recall those words, Simon? Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Peter never forgot what it was like to be in Satan's sieve. In that same chapter 5 of his first epistle, he warns the believers, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he exhorts them, to resist him, standing firm in the faith. And surely Peter must have remembered the Lord's words addressed directly to him. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so in his first epistle, he can comfort these believers from his own experience And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. And as Peter looked back to that night in the upper room, he will have recalled those momentous words of the Lord Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It would be some time before Peter fully understood the implications of the new covenant. He would struggle to let go of some aspects of the old covenant, especially the provisions about what you could and could not eat. But eventually Peter would come to realize that the old covenant had been replaced by the new covenant. In Paul's words back in Galatians again, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Peter knew the terms of the old conditional mosaic covenant. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But now he can declare to these believers and to us the glories of the new unconditional covenant. Describing the status of all those who have put their faith in the finished work of Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time spent in your word. We thank you for this wonderful passage of Luke's gospel. We thank you for the the reality and the truth and the blessings of the new covenant and all that that means to each of us who are in Christ. We give you thanks for this time together in Jesus' name.